The resilience for me was born from adversity. If I hadn't gone through those difficult times, I wouldn't have built up that resilience, you know, those skills that I needed to utilise later on in life. And I think while adversity is this very difficult, horrible time, it is also the building blocks to build up resilience, to build in that, that mindset to enable you to move forward. I'd say for me, some of the most important things were just accepting it's going to go wrong. It's going to fail. And not being scared to fail. If I'd have always concentrated on what can go wrong, where will I fail? I'd have never even taken one step outside alone. Simon Wheatcroft is living proof that resilience is born from adversity, accepting that things will go wrong, not go to plan, and being prepared to embrace failure without fear. Having lost his sight at an early age, Simon used running solo as his foundation to building an abundant life as a runner, motivational speaker, and now teacher. In part two, Simon explains how he discovered the haptic technology company Wearworks and how the combination of sensors are enabling him to run races and sense people around him and even overtake them. We discuss the future advances in LiDAR technology that will create 3D depth maps of spaces and object recognition technology that will transform the lives of people with visual impairments. Simon explains the serendipitous moments in life that resulted in him studying clinical psychology, computational neuroscience and AI and led him onto the motivational public speaking stage. Simon discusses resilience, dealing with adversity, fear, failure and managing pain and reveals how he's changing career to teach and explains his passion to provide visually impaired children with the computer science skills to live a life of equal opportunity. I also ask Simon about the importance of accessibility for visually impaired people and how web page metadata and hierarchies actually work. And finally, Simon answers all our quickfire questions. I'm sure you will feel uplifted, inspired and energised by the life story of Simon Wheatcroft. Talk to us about how you discovered Wearworks. And um, obviously we've covered in the previous episode with Kevin and Keith about what they are doing with haptic technology. And for people that maybe haven't listened to that episode just explain what haptics is and how this takes your running to another level. Yeah, well, I came across where it works. I just I got back from the desert. I'd just been involved in the accident you mentioned earlier, you know, about the burnout car. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that obviously took a massive hit mentally. Um, you know, running into the car. I'm still obviously I still carry literally the physical scars from that because, you know, it sliced me up to a reasonable level. And mentally it shook me up. I'd been doing this for years and this was the first time it had gone wrong in such spectacular fashion. It was the first time I'd ever had to call my wife and say, you know, you've got to come and find me. You know, she'd been dreading that call. She knew it happened one day and it finally happened now. You know, I'd, uh, I had to call her and get her to rescue me. So it was a tough time. You know, mentally, I just thought, can I go back out? Can I ever do it again? And that, ate at me for quite a while. It's probably like a month or so. And uh, I was actually in India. And I thought to myself, if I dare run on the streets of India, I'm back. Let's do it. So we went out. We ran the streets in India. And my God, that's scary. But I thought to myself, I can do it again. If I could do it there, I could do it anywhere. So then I come back. And around this time, 
you know, I mentioned I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of tech. I read a lot about tech. You know, I probably read like 60, 70 articles a day. I'm a big reader. And uh, I read TechCrunch. And TechCrunch had one of the decks of a company that presented a TechCrunch event. I thought, oh, I'll have a look at this. So I had a look at it, and it was Wearworks. And I was like, oh, my God, this is so similar to what we did in the desert because uh, I, I did a navigation system in the desert. And, you know, after the accident with the car, I thought to myself, you know, maybe we could all work together. We could work on their system, also create something to help with detecting the objects. And they were doing what I'd wanted to do all along, which was haptics, because when I'd created a navigation system in the desert, it used audio. That was due to time constraints, whereas these guys, I felt, had done it the way I'd always wanted to do it, perhaps the, the correct way to do it. And that was to give the navigation information through haptics, so vibrations, rather than through audio. So I don't think they even put their email address in the deck. I can't remember. I think I had to go online and track them down. And I think Keith, no, Kevin, I think Kevin had wrote a piece for some other website and it happened to actually have his email address. So I just shot him an email saying, you know, this is who I am. I'd love it if we could work together. Wow. And that then led to Kevin lining up with you for the New York Marathon with your haptic device. Yeah. And that you reached a point successfully, I believe, until the rain started because they hadn't designed for for water damage. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, um, what I would say is, I accelerated their timeline greatly (laughs) (laughs) and probably put a bit too much time pressure on too early on. And so then, of course, you know, you perhaps don't end up with the final product and the average set it up. It wasn't waterproof. So after running 50 miles uh, with the system, we got to the point where safety became an issue because... The last thing you want to do is, is run into another runner because, you know, if you run into somebody else, people train their entire lives to, to run marathons. You know, it, for me, New York was the pinnacle of the old marathon I never wanted to do. I'm sure that was a lot of other people's in the race as well. So, yeah, it was time to drop the technology and then uh, use a guide runner to finish the race. But, you know, as ever, it's not necessarily about finishing the race or the time. It's how far can you go? And we got more than halfway using this very early stage system from where it works. And yeah, fantastic. I just wanted to say one last thing about it is because, you know, we've talked about all my running. So obviously trained solo, uh, competed with guide runners, although I've ran the desert uh, using technology. So I, I had never, as a lone person, ever like done an overtake while running. Because obviously I can't, <laughs> see the person to overtake them. Do you know what I mean? I, yeah. <laughs> I, I've got no real sense of that happening. So what was really cool about the system for the for the marathon is for the first time, I could actually overtake people, which is pretty cool. So for people who don't know how this works, can you just explain how the technology uh, is configured yeah. to allow you to sense when someone is coming up in front of you? Sure. So after I ran into the car, uh, I realized that what we needed is some type of device that would send out a ping. And then if the ping comes back, you know, something's in front. 
So if it comes back really quickly, the object's really close. If it takes a while to come back, the object's farther away. If no signal comes back, you know, it's, uh, it's clear in front. So the way I would use to, uh, that to overtake is what I would do, I'd lock into a person, so a particular level of vibration, and then I would move left and right. I'd wait for that vibration to cut out, so then I knew it was clear, so then I could run ahead, and then you can tell when you're overtaking someone, you know. And then I'd cut back in, then find another vibration, rinse and repeat. So I can't remember what the... You know the first bridge in the, the race? I can't remember what the name Verizano. of that bridge is. Yeah, okay. So that one, I was basically just overtaken all the way on that bridge because wow. I could just use that as a you know a technique to overtake. Because then you come off the bridge and it like drops down to the left. Yeah. And then it levels out and then it drops to the right and then it curves around to the right and it curves around slightly to the left and then you're on, uh, it's like the shoulder almost of the freeway. So yes. Yeah, all that bit was... Uh, I was overtaken all the way around that bit. That's incredible. So where where do you think the technology is going and how is it going to enable you further? What I would say is that that, that technology we just spoke about was never intended to be a, a product for runners. It was more about a product to just navigate independently around an environment and just get a bit more feedback on navigation. So I would hope as the technology progresses, because technology always improves, so we can start to get really cool inputs going in, like um, things like LiDAR to give you full depth perception, 3D mapping, you know, you can use cameras. And then we can start to translate all that into these little haptic vibrations to know if you need to move left slightly, right slightly. You know, is there somebody in front? You know, can I overtake that person while walking down the street? So I'm hoping we get to a point where the system can take whatever inputs but it just uses vibration to help you know whether you need to go left, right, and uh, independently and discreetly move around an environment. Wow. So, where do you think we're? What do you think we're looking at uh, in timeline to having these devices of, uh, commercially available? In terms of timeline, the device to do the haptics, you know, you can probably have that in like twelve months. But then what you need to think is, once you've got the device that can do the haptics, the inputs that it can take constantly improve. So every year, those inputs will improve. Will the input be the camera on your phone? You know, will it be a LiDAR sensor on your phone? Then will it migrate to, you know, some kind of wearable glasses that has LiDAR or a camera? So the haptics, you know, 12 months, the rest of those input devices, well, the rumor is LiDAR on the iPhone end of this year, you know, on some type of wearable, probably looking at maybe two to three years. And for people that don't know what LiDAR is, could you explain? Yeah, okay. So it's basically, think of it as this little sensor that sends out little lasers and it can accurately do a 3D depth map of a given environment. So if I was to stand in a room it would perhaps say, you know, directly ahead of you in 0.75 meters, there is an object that starts at the floor. It is 75 centimeters high. So, you know, there's an object there. So then once you've got the information, you can then obviously use the haptic system to avoid the object. It might be a table, it might be a chair. But you've got this accurate 3D depth map of what is going on in any given space. And this is um, all part of Apple's 
vision for the future of AR, um, I believe. Yeah. Yes. Current iPad Pro has that LiDAR sensor. So the future's here. But I don't really want to walk around holding an iPad Pro out in front of me. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, technology progresses. Yeah, and with machine learning as well built into these devices, they're just going to become smarter. Oh, gosh, we can get to a point where, you know, I just described it right now, it's got a 3D depth map, but we'll get Mm -hmm. to a point where it knows exactly what object it is. And then I can sit down at a table as a blind person look down with a pair of wearable glasses and I can know exactly where the glass is, the candle, the knife, the fork, the menu, whatever. Because I've got an accurate 3D depth map of what's there. The bit that is missing is how you communicate that to the person. And that's the bit that, that we're works, of course, working on. They're working on, you know, this uh, sort of navigation. But there's you know, no reason why where works or the people can't come up with uh, a system to work on uh, other things yeah i mean it's it's amazing so and eventually you'll be in the desert and saying bring on that burnt out car <laughs> you'll be no, <laughs> no barrier there so we part of our reason for doing the podcast is to explore serendipity and how people's upbringing the reason we ask about upbringing is about their perception to life to failure, to embracing fear, to their levels of curiosity. And we believe that when people do confront their fears, that do uh, embrace failure and move on, they're more likely to go down the road less travel. And when you do that, you encounter people, situations and experiences that you wouldn't otherwise encounter. So where has serendipity played a part? I mean, obviously, from hearing your story, there have been some seemingly serendipitous moments. Or is there anything that you would call out specifically? Yeah, I think for me, the, the main things are unknowingly learning all those skills. You know, when I was younger, um, back then, I was trying to learn those things to not have to use uh, things like a, a cane, which a blind person would generally use to move around, or a guide dog. And I didn't realize I was building up these skills, which would then lead me to do something entirely different that I'd never envisaged. You know, I never thought I would run. I never thought I'd even take on any of these adventures. And then just sometimes how things connect, because uh, can you remember I mentioned that when the marathon was cancelled, we ended up going to that couple's house for dinner? Yes. So then if you fast forward a few years, that's where my wife ends up staying when she goes to New York with my son to meet me. And we would turn out to bump into that guy just on random runs in New York years later. And then I can also remember when I was running from Boston to New York, this lady called Andrea uh, ran with me for a little bit while we're near Boston because she's based in Boston. And then she just so happened to be due in New York for a meeting now when I was going to be in New York. So she came around with me a little bit more in New York. And then me and Andrew just ended up having this relationship that goes on for years. I ended up running the Boston Marathon with her. And then I can remember spending Thanksgiving like at her parents' house in upstate New York. And just how all these threads seem to interweave. And it all started, you know, on this football pitch with an app. And it enabled me to 
do all these incredible things, go all over the world and just have experiences that I never thought, I well, never thought were possible. And, you know, the, the further you track it back, it just seems to become more unreal. Okay, so let's talk about the mindset. You've had a, a, an incredible journey and you've got amazing stories to tell and you tell these stories to inspire people. Before we get into me asking you around mindset and what people can take away from your experience, could you just explain why you went and studied psychology and took time to go and do that, but given your your passion was technology? And I know you did your master's as well in computer science. Yeah. So the reason I studied psychology rather than you know picking up a computer science degree was this is after you know I'd left IT and for me back then, using technology was a very visual medium. You know, you look at a screen, you interact with a mouse, very, very visual. And I just thought, I don't know how I'm going to do this with no visual. So I'm going to do something entirely different. Let's go psychology, go clinical psychology. Perhaps I can, you know, be a psychologist, therapist, work in, work in that field. So I head to university. So, I, you know, I didn't go to university when I was younger. So this is the first time I'm going as a mature student. And you could choose some of your modules initially. And some of the modules were artificial intelligence. So, okay, that sounds kind of cool, artificial intelligence. Yeah, I'll take that one. And then I took some computational neuroscience. Thought, oh, computational, that's, that sounds kind of cool. So then before I knew it, I had got rid of every single clinical module and all I was doing was studying computational neuroscience and artificial intelligence. Wow. So by the time I got through my degree, I was like, hang on a minute, I can't actually go clinical now because I ended up doing more to do with computational. But strangely, this is while all the running had been going on. And that's when I ended up moving into, into public speaking. But as another aside, so my lecturers at that point in time obviously also also psychologists. So then when I go back to study computer science at master's level, it turns out all those lecturers have transitioned to the computer science department and they now teach artificial intelligence <laughs> in the computer science department. And I'm like, this is weird, guys. You know, we were all doing psychology years ago. Now we've all ended up in the, in the same department. So it was almost like that department was going through a transitional change and I happened to attend while that was going on. And then our paths met again. And you know what? Actually, I want to tell a really weird story that I just remembered happened when I did that first degree. Okay, so I have never in my life like emailed the author of a book before. You know, that's not never, something... Never, sorry, say that again. Um, I'd never in my life sort of emailed the author of a book. You know, that I, it's not like I'd read a book and then email the author. Yeah. But the, there was this one book I read called Mind Hacks. And I emailed the author saying, oh, you know, your book was fantastic. I took so much from it. You know, thank you. Thank you. Great book. So I started doing my psychology degree. And I get an email from my uh, personal tutor saying, Simon, you know, we need to meet, get to know each other, going to be in this room, da, 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 da. And then I forget what room I'm in. So I search the email for his name, Tom Stafford. And this email comes up that's sent to this author as well as the room I need to be in. So I go to meet him. I sit down. I said, before we start, you're not the same Tom Stafford that wrote Mind Hacks, are you? He said, yeah, I'm yeah, it's my book. 
Oh my goodness. <laughs> <like>, wow. What? <laughs> and that is the only time I have ever emailed an author. And then I ended up, he was my personal tutor. And yeah, we ended up staying as my tutor for the full three years because it was just unbelievable that we would end up <laughs> so doing things together. So yeah, that was a crazy high story. Well, okay. Well, that's serendipity. Yeah, it was yeah, crazy. So I forgot what I was actually, the question I was answering now. Oh yes, <laughs> why did psychology? So yeah, it was, it was to try and get out of computing, but the love of technology sort of drew me back in. You know, I, I just love technology. I, I love, you know, the possibilities it, it enables and yeah, got drew back in. Okay. So let's talk about the situation that we're in today. People have been on lockdown. They've been, had their lives disrupted, facing personal adversity with loss of work. People seeing, witnessing around them, particularly in the US, the racial injustice. Something that's talked a lot about at the moment is resilience. Now, clearly you've built up the tool set uh, to be resilient. Can you just talk to us about the importance of things like gratitude, building a positive mindset, the role of purpose, and uh, reflect on giving up and failure? Yeah, sure. I'd say the resilience for me was born from adversity. If I hadn't gone through those difficult times, I wouldn't have built up that resilience, you know, those skills that I needed to, you know, utilize later on in life. And I think while adversity is this very difficult, horrible time, it is also the building blocks to building up resilience, to building that that mindset to enable you to move forward. And I'd say for me, some of the most important things were just accepting it's going to go wrong. You know, it's going to fail. It will go wrong. And not being scared to fail. I think if I'd have always concentrated on what can go wrong, where will I fail? I'd have never even taken, you know, one step outside alone. And where was that born from? I would say more than anything, it was. I was at a point in my life where I'd realized everything was on pause. And realistically, how long can you live your life on pause? Because before you know it, you put yourself on pause, you think, oh, it's only going for one week, maybe for two weeks. Before you know it, two weeks is two months. Then two months turns into six months and you're still on pause. And you just think, why have I not moved forward? And that's because you've been waiting for things to just improve overnight and things don't improve overnight things take a long time to get better and rather than just pausing i'd realize that i need to start moving forward now it is going to be hard things are going to go wrong but that is going to be part of the journey and it turned out that journey looking back ended up being you know the best bit i don't really think too much about particular races or particular achievements i think about the entire journey as a whole and i've managed to come so far and now you know my kids are now at an age where they'll say oh dad why did you do this and i have to think oh gosh you know, how do i explain why, why did i do that <laughs> i think now my kids being old enough it started to give me a different perspective 
on why I did do those things. And, you know, as a, as a blind person, I realized that my kids were going to grow up with a blind father. And did I want them to see that my life was on pause? Or did I want them to see that I was going out there and doing everything that I wanted to do? And hopefully, you know, they've seen that and, you know, they, they run with that and they believe they can do whatever they want to do. That's, yeah, it's incredible. It's very inspiring. Because something we didn't touch upon, but to me was, you know, a real, a really powerful moment. Do you know, we talked about running from Boston to New York. Yeah. Running every day is painful, physically painful. You know, I, I was taking some serious damage because as a, as a blind runner, you can't see, you know, if you're going to step evenly, you know, you might hit a pavement slab slightly wrong. So you take a lot of damage, you know, to like the Achilles and the knees and things because you just can't compensate correctly. Yeah. So I'm in a lot of pain, a lot of pain. And I'm just outside of New York at this point. I can't even walk up or down stairs. I have to walk sideways to be pain free. I am in intense pain. And, uh, the intention was this day was to meet my eldest son, who was four at the time, and we were going to run the last two miles together, cross the finish line in Central Park together. And I remember meeting him on the corner. Uh, I think it was a seventy seconds near a Starbucks. Yeah, and it was there, and all of a sudden the pain just melted away because I'd got to the point where you know I was going to get to run with him. You know, I'd started running seriously the week he was born and now you know he'd come over to to new york and we're going to run these last two miles together and it made me realize just how much that pain was in my head and when something means so much to you all that just melts away and you can keep on going and that's it was finding that one thing that meant so much to me and i didn't think it was going to be as powerful a moment as it turned out to be when i met him but honestly i just can't even explain just how much pain it was like a light switch i'd gone from crying in pain to him being there and being i can run now because uh because grayson's there wow that's incredible but he did cross he did cross the finish line first and break the ticket tape but you know <laughs> <laughs> all right you've got to give him that <laughs> I would like to say that I have a tear in my eyes. I know you mm-hmm. can't, I can't show this to you, but I would <laughs> share this with you. That's yeah, a beautiful story. Very, very emotional story. No, it was, that was honestly one of the, the best moments getting to, getting to me in there. Actually, sorry, I've got another sub story. <laughs> I have to get my napkin. <laughs> okay, so then, you know, that's an amazing moment. Uh, but then, so when I ran into the car, because my wife can't leave the kids at home because they're small, then they have to see the harsh reality of it. So, you know, while they got to see these incredible things that I was able to do, they also got to see the price you pay for these things. And sometimes the price you pay can be quite high. And, you know, getting to see me, you know, cut up and covered in blood was probably not the best thing I could have ever seen. But we didn't know how not to expose them to that. You know, it was a, a real rushed moment. I needed someone to come and sort of rescue me. And uh, unfortunately, the kids kids saw that. Yeah. And that was in Namibia? No, that, that was the burnt out car, you know, after. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. After Namibia. So okay. 
yeah i didn't i didn't take the kids to africa um, <laughs> i just went with my friend uh neil to africa to be honest the, the, my wife and kids rarely come to the events the only time they've ever come is for the new york one and my wife came to the first ever ultra because ultra running is not a great spectator sport (laughs) (laughs) definitely not especially if it's in a a flat environment as well yeah yeah daddy's just gonna go and run for 38 hours see you later (laughs) so go on quick questions before we get into just quick fire questions i want to get your perspective on education obviously you we're blessed with a, a great memory and maybe not great attention. <laughs> but uh, what would you do given your, what you've gone through? What changes would you like to see in the education system that would cater for children with disabilities uh, that would better prepare them for the world that we're moving into where we're all going to see g- uh, general artificial intelligence, the role of us as humans has to change where we rediscover our humanity? Is there anything that you would focus in on? You do know I'm changing my career to be a teacher. Did you know that? No, I didn't know. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, in September. I'm literally, like right now, I'm just doing some of the courses just to, you know, because everyone's under lockdown, so I'm just doing some of the courses. But yeah, I start in September. Yeah. Wow. Teacher of what? I I, I didn't find any of this in the research, but... Ah, you see, because I don't talk about it right now. Because um, if you, I think I've probably made one passing comment about it the other day. But I, I, be, do you know, because I haven't officially started yet, it's not something I've, I've publicly been talking about. Uh, but yeah, I'm going to be teaching computer science at secondary school starting September. Brilliant. Wow. Um, and the sort of reason behind that, the reason I want to go into teaching is, the current provisioning right now in England, I would say for blind children, if you're in mainstream education, is not that great because it comes down to whatever the local authority is able to provide. Um, so then if the skills, resources and knowledge don't exist in your local authority, your opportunity is going to be severely diminished. So the intention is for me to go and start my teaching journey and then begin to have an impact at that level and ensure that we really can bring those skills, resources, that knowledge into mainstream schools for visually impaired children to ensure they can achieve as high as uh, everyone else does in that school. So that's the, that's the longer term goal. Sorry, I'm, I'm to have a curiosity on this. Is it a, a school for kids with special needs or is it just in, in a regular uh, secondary school? No, the, the, often the way it's structured in England is there aren't really specialist blind schools anymore because in America you'll still have like um, state schools for the blind. Mm-hmm. That You don't really get that in England anymore. So what happens is uh, like there's a, a, a policy that states that every local authority, so that's like your state government, has to provide like a service for visually impaired students so what they do is they'll visit all the schools, you know, just go around. So you'll go to a normal school and then these people will pop in every now and again and help you with any you know, additional needs. But the problem is if those people at the local authority aren't clued up on the latest, greatest technology assistive stuff, then you're, it's a bit of a, a lottery whether your local authorities uh, 
got the right knowledge to help you succeed. Mm-hmm. So is it just like a, so the kids are with every other kid plus they just yeah. get special attention due to their, you know, because they have some impairment. So they just get the special attention within the class, right? Is that how it's set up in England? Yep. They would, don't get me wrong, there are a few blind schools, but not, not very many. You know, you'd have to move away from home and stuff. Um, so yeah, that's the way it works in England. You would just go to a local mainstream school and then you would keep your fingers crossed that things are made accessible. But often, unfortunately, it's not as accessible as you'd hope it would be. One of the questions I've got outside of the podcast, and we have a company and we do web development and design, and obviously accessibility is a big part of it. But a lot of people maybe don't realize the importance of accessibility. Could you just explain, because when you talked about uh, reading how you consume content on the web, just so people understand that they might not be aware of it. Yeah, sure. Uh, so the way I would consume content on the internet, let's say we go to a regular web page. So web pages, hopefully, are broken up into sort of hierarchical elements. So, you know, you might have a navigation bar, and then let's say we read a particular article, that will have like a heading level one, and then under that there'll be like heading level twos, so like little subheadings, heading head in level three so what i would do as a blind person is i would first of all the first thing i would do is jump to head in level one get a sense of what that page is about then i could drop back to the navigation bar and navigate through the navigation bar or and then you know i could drop back into the article and all this is basically passed through to the screen reader so it just uses you know like a text to speech engine and just reads out whatever i happen to be currently highlighting but when it falls down is if people don't use those sort of hierarchical elements or they don't add nice navigation systems so then i have no way of understanding the structure of the page and then it's really hard for me to understand the exactly what's going on and it can get very very difficult and also why it's important we tell clients all the time the importance of alt tags for images to be able to put in accurate descriptions of what those images are absolutely i would say the internet you know goes through phases and I think for the past sort of six or seven years, you know, obviously we're going heavy on the uh, the images and the videos. So that's been quite difficult for for blind people. But we are getting to the stage now where, like you just mentioned, alt tags, or we can even highlight the image, pass it through to OCR, you know, so if it's got text and it, it can read the text to us. Or even now you can do sort of um, object detection within the image. So it'll say, it's a photo of a mountain with a snow cap and, and things like that. So... Now we're finally getting to a point where we are starting to get something from the images, whereas historically it'd just be a really long file name .jpg, and you know that yeah. didn't really <laughs> add, didn't really add anything to the, to the experience for for me. Yeah. Okay. I just wanted to put that in there because it's something that uh, I deal with daily. So let's just jump into the quick fire questions. So before I do that, actually, there is a question we ask sometimes, which is, it's not the circumstances that define you, it's your response. What response to any set of circumstances has been pivotal? Now, we obviously know, you know because we've just been talking about it, there, is there any one particular that you haven't mentioned that's been a major setback where you've managed to confront it and carry on? I think the hardest of everything I've done, there's one thing that sticks out as being one of the hardest things to overcome. Because often, you know, when I when I do tell my stories, they focus on some of the physical challenges I've managed to achieve. 
Whereas one of the hardest things was uh, while I was studying for my psychology degree. And when I first started the degree, what I could do is if I inverted my screen, put it to a certain size, I could read a little bit so I could read, so to speak. And then when we broke up for that semester, my vision deteriorated and then I went back and I could no longer read. And so now I have to quickly learn to use audio as my main learning methodology at the same time as succeeding at university. And it was incredibly, incredibly difficult, very stressful, because I certainly didn't want to quit and I wanted to do the best I could. And I'm a relatively determined person. So I would put in a lot of effort to try and do as well as I could. And it was just so hard transitioning from being able to read even a little bit to not being able to read just, it felt like it was overnight because, you know, when you break up, you're off for like six, seven weeks, aren't you? So I hadn't really been doing much work, but it really felt like overnight I had to quickly adapt to succeed. And yeah, still to this day, one of the hardest and quickest transitions I've ever had to do. One thing we didn't talk about is your proposal to your wife at uh, Yosemite. Your yep. wife must have been uh, incredibly supportive along your journey and a, a key a part of your success. Yeah, I think she's always been supporting of me pushing the boundaries because essentially very high risk. You know, I was running along the side of a road balanced on a curbstone. You know, if I went wrong by an inch, I'm, you know, falling down in front of a car that's doing 60 miles an hour. So there was no room forever. I could never make a mistake. The price to pay for that mistake was uh, was very high. And Sean knew that. Sean knew I was going out every day and taking that risk. And she never got on at me about it. She never sort of tried to, to stop me. She realized what it was doing for me in terms of making me believe that anything was possible. This is what I was using to prove to myself that I could do anything. And she was on board with that. And then there was only one thing I was never allowed to do, and that was run across a desert. So, of course, I entered a desert race. <laughs> <laughs> and she was, she was not too happy about that to the point where she refused to talk to me about it. She just didn't want to know. She just did not want to know that I was doing it because I'd always said I wouldn't do it. So that was hard because for the first time, I was doing something that she'd expressed that she didn't want me to do. And uh, I went and did it, which is probably you know, not, not the best decision ever. <laughs> okay, well, that leads us to a quick five questions. Um, what principles do you stand by? I think mainly I just try to do the best I can. You know, I try to be adaptable and I try to continuously move forward. And that's the sort of the, the underlining theme for a lot of things I do. Adapt quickly, move forward, try and be positive. Okay, that's good advice. What hard choices have you had to make that might have been tough at the time, but did turn out to be the right decision in the end? I think, you know, choosing to take voluntary redundancy, knowing that it was going to be so hard for me to, you know, get back into employment was a hard decision, but it turned out to be 
you know, an, an incredible decision. It led me down a path that I never thought I would go down. Where do you go or what do you do to discover new ideas? Good question. Um, I would say I do a lot of my thinking while running. When you train a lot, you have a lot of time to think. And when you're trying to think of anything new or solve anything, how often do you take like two, three, four, five hours in a block and sit and think about a problem? And that's what running long distances gave me. You know, I could go out on my own and think about one thing for hours. And that amount of dedicated time thinking about a particular topic is often what led me down a new undiscovered path. So just giving yourself time to think about one problem. That leads us nicely to the next question, which is what, what is the one problem worth solving? The one problem worth solving, oof, mm-hmm. for me personally, I really think, you know, because I'm obviously a part of this community, the blind community has a massive problem with employment. 75% unemployment is just unbelievable. There's no way it should be that high. That is a problem that absolutely needs solving. I believe that's going to start, you know, these sort of education years, which is one of the reasons why I'm going into teaching in the hope that I can have some sort of impact just to move that number in the in the right direction. Yeah, totally agree. I mean, the stigma and the discrimination that still exists is uh, fairly deplorable. Oh my gosh, you would not believe. People, even in the past few years, have been willing to say to my face, you're not getting this job because you're blind. Actually, say it to your face. You just think, hang on a minute. There's like a there's a law against this, and you said it yeah. to my face. <laughs> yeah, it's it's unbelievable. People are, are willing to openly discriminate to your face, and you wouldn't think that people would do it, but they do. And imagine if you're if you're struggling with confidence anyway. Yeah. And then someone says that to your face. It must be absolutely devastating. Whereas often when people say that to my face, I have a bit of a pop back. <laughs> I'm sure you do. Yeah. I just can't believe how how hard it must be to hear that if you're not in a place where, you know, it can just roll off you. Okay. If you could, so we changed this question. I should have updated it, but I'll ask it anyway. If you don't have an answer, it's fine. If you could return to one night, a day in history, where and when and to see who for the purposes of changing something for the better in the future? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I can only think of like a moment I'd want to return to to save her more uh-huh. rather than a moment I could return to, you know, to improve things in the future, if that makes sense. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I'd like to go back to when, you know, I did meet my eldest son and Sean on that street corner and just save her save it a little bit more yeah it just stands out in my head you know is a an incredible moment and it'd been even better if uh unfortunately my youngest son's passport got denied so i couldn't get my youngest son there mm-hmm. so maybe if i could go back make sure he actually got that passport <laughs> yeah so uh we could have all been there but you know looking back is always a tough thing for me i, I try not to look back too often and uh, and mainly look forward. So I would hope there's going to be a point in time where, 
me and my two sons run a chunk of that together. Or the whole New York Marathon. Yeah, yeah. I'd have to wait till they're 18 for that unless we get some fake passports, though. So. <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> okay. Is there a question no one asks you that you wish they would? Not really, because I always think people ask the questions they want to know the answers to. So I never want to supply somebody a question because different people want to find out different things. If I just supply questions and answers, they're not perhaps learning what they want to learn from you. And to be honest, it's one of the things I, you know, I really enjoy about public speaking, the Q&A. I really enjoy when people ask different questions and you can see that they took something very different from the, you know, the story you've just told. And and that's what I really enjoy. So I try not to sort of uh, feed questions or wish that they'd ask me something. I'm just happy that, you know, people want to ask me questions more than anything. Who's made you reevaluate yourself? Yeah, I, I think especially, you know, the public speaking uh, makes you have to look like retrospectively or on what you've done and introspectively as well, like really look into the reasons why you've done something. And that's an interesting topic, really, because in the moment, are you doing it for the reasons you use at a later point in time? In the moment, I often think the reason we do it is perhaps more impulsive. But then when we try to explain why we did it at a later point in time, we often perhaps try and assign greater meaning to that decision whereas essentially perhaps it was just impulsive let's just do it and i think often that a lot of the times why do i do these things because it's better to do it than not to do it you know do i continue to be on that pause or just push forward and that's it do do i want to be known for never giving it a shot or or not and so yeah, I think it's more simplistic perhaps than uh, than the meaning I perhaps assign to it a later day. But who knows? I don't know. It's not like I'm um, writing it down as I'm doing it. I can only look back and uh, and offer explanations uh, for why I did it. I meandered a bit there. <laughs> yeah. No. No, it's fine. Uh, the impossible question. What would your advice be to someone that's got about to graduate or study that's got a dream, a big ambition that's been told, forget it, it's impossible? I am often told things are impossible, but that's just coming from someone who thinks it's impossible. Just because they think it's impossible doesn't mean it is impossible. And that's often what it's been for me. You know, I'm always told, you can't do this, you can't do that. I'm like, well, why? Just because you think it's not possible doesn't mean that it is impossible. And I perhaps enjoy taking on hard challenges a little bit too much and finding a solution. And I get a lot of pleasure from finding solutions to problems that often seem impossible at first look. Yeah. Good answer. A little bit fun. What's your go-to karaoke song? Well, because I can't see the words on the screen. Uh, exactly, I, but you got, but you got, but you got a good memory. I have. You know what? You're not getting off the hook that easily. Okay, maybe I'd so let me think. What would what would I do at karaoke? As you know, what? I, I listen to 
music that's not very karaoke Okay. <laughs> so mainly the music I listen to is things uh, or like hip hop, metal, alternative, and I cannot imagine doing any of those <laughs> at karaoke. Oh, oh, maybe I could. I tell you, I do like quite a lot. I quite like Heim. Maybe I could learn some lyrics to a Heim song and go and okay. sing a Heim song. Yeah. Well, we've we've had everything. We've had ACDC all the way through to. Um, Radiohead and uh, and beyond and hip hop everything. We're going to create a, a um, or Bettina is going to create a Spotify playlist of all our guests' karaoke songs. Oh gosh, well, I'll, do you know what? I'll tell you what song, what songs I did listen to a lot. You know, in the desert in New York and stuff. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So it was a lot of Alt J. Yeah. And then a lot of Fleetwood Mac rumors. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I listened to that a lot in the desert. So me and the, the ghost runner would often be singing in the desert at uh, Fleetwood Mac rumors. Yeah. <laughs> a, str- a strange one to envision, but anyway. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. so uh, during lockdown, uh, a lot of people have been consuming content. In your case, obviously, this it wouldn't work because it, we talk about Netflix, but is there anything that you've listened to? Oh, no, I watch Netflix all the time. Yeah, but is there anything you've listened listen to that you consume that's content related that you think people should? And it could be an audio book, it could be a, a Netflix series. What would it, what would you recommend someone consume? I tell you, I've been reading a lot around just some of the nineteen eighties uh, computing stuff recently, and there's a great book, Ghost in the Wires. Mm-hmm. It's just fantastic. It's the story of Kevin Mitnick. He was a hacker, and then the FBI were trying to track him down. So then he tracked down the FBI to find out how close they were to him. <laughs> and it's a, it's just a very compelling story of these systems that were created in the 80s and just how accessible they were in terms of getting inside the system and exploring. And I just find that entire concept of learning a system without the manual, without the instructions, without anyone telling you how to do something and just exploring, I find it really fascinating. Okay, we'll put that one in. And our final question is, who should we interview next? There's a guy that I run with a lot, Neil Bacon. Now, I met this guy the night of Glastonbury Mm -hmm. in the pitch black, I was emotionally and physically in a really difficult place. And Neil came along and ran with me and told me his life story, which was incredibly compelling. And we have been friends now for nine years. Uh, I go and see him every Christmas. We often holiday my family with him. We still run together. We have traveled the world together. He ran from Boston to New York with me the entire way. And he's just a fascinating person. He's ran multiple uh, health tech startups. And his passion has been to improve the quality of care for everybody, to ensure that no matter where you live, you can get high quality of uh, healthcare. That would be very interesting. So we'll follow up with you to. Uh set up an introduction once this episode goes live. Yeah. We always just wrap up 
and thank you and acknowledge you. So things that really sort of jumped out here are clearly your fearless spirit, your boundary pushing attitude, the, I suppose, your sensory acuity that you've developed and your clarity of purpose and just out, outright courage, um, which is in, incredible. There's a quote um, I read recently by John Kabat-Zinn, which is, you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. And it really sort of uh, re- resonated with me on, in terms of the way that you've approached your, your journey. So just thank you again and uh, really appreciate your time. Oh, honestly, it's fun. <laughs> I have a question for Simon before we leave. Sure. Are you going to give up running now that you're going to focus on teaching or are you still continuing with that passion of yours? And also also with the technology on that in that sense as well. Right? Um, kind of goes I think to- for me, the running was just to see if things were possible. And I did, I, you know, I proved that a lot was possible through that. Will I give up running? I, I still run six miles a day, like seven days a week. Uh, so I probably wouldn't give up running. But I suppose it's it's less about the running. The uh, Will I give up the adventuring? Yes. And I hope that my sons become interested in adventuring because. I would love to to do some ultra endurance with my sons, but we'd need to wait until they were a little bit older. So I think I'm going to stick with it, uh, continue to do, you know, an adventure here, an adventure there. But the main focus is 100% now on, you know, being the best teacher I can possibly be and hopefully inspire and motivate other people to go out there and, you know, make the impossible possible. And I think I think that's what I want to do for the next 10, 15 years. Work with these children and help them see that they can do anything they want to do. Brilliant. Very cool. Great way to end. Well, thank you very much, Simon. And uh, good luck with it. Let's keep in touch. Yeah. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.